Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Hey, fellow truth seekers, I'm Justin. And I'm Brandy. And together, we'll be your guides on this spine-tingling journey through the unknown. We dive headfirst into the eerie realms of cryptids, from Bigfoot to Loch Ness Monster. And hold on tight, because we'll explore spine-chilling encounters with extraterrestrial beings and UFO sightings that will leave you questioning what's really out there. Beyond the Shadows is not your average paranormal podcast. Our goal is simple, to shed light on the shadows that haunt our world and confront the unexplained with an open mind. And for the skeptics, don't worry, we have something for you too. Our conspiracy theories will challenge your beliefs and make you question everything. So, if you're fascinated by the paranormal, yearn for chilling true crime stories, or crave the adrenaline rush of uncovering conspiracies, join us on this hair-raising adventure as we journey beyond the shadows. Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Alrighty, Mom, what story do you have for us today? Well, I'm going to be telling you about Johnny Blake Peterson. This is an older case from the late 70s and early 80s that potentially he was a serial killer. So we're going to find out more about that. And what are you going to be telling us about today? Today, I'm going to be talking about the Metcalf attacks. I don't think I have heard anything about that, so I'm very curious as to what this story is. I don't think a lot of people, or at least a lot of our American listeners, have heard of it because it oh. went fairly under the radar. Okay. Okay. And to go with this story, I have the Electric Lemonade. Consists of one ounce of vodka, one ounce of blue curacao, two ounces of lemonade, a squeeze of lime, six ounces of lemon lime soda, uh, one lime sliced into wheels for a garnish, but I didn't do that. So let's try this. All right. It is a bright cool color, at drink. least. Yeah. It is wild. I don't taste any alcohol. That's pretty fucking good. Yeah. That's that's yeah, just really like juice. yummy. It does. <laughs> I think this could be dangerous. It's got a lot of sugar in it, though. Mm. Dangerous because it doesn't taste bad and it gives you a fucking horrible hangover. Yes, exactly. Well, okay. what is well, this me... wild story that you have to go with this? Yes. So the Metcalf sniper attacks. And it sounds oh. brutal, but... It's bizarre. Promise it's bizarre. you. Bizarre. Okay. 
So, in 2013, California experienced what some might call a terroristic attack that flew under everyone's radar. On U.S. Route 101, a few men hopped out of their car and made their way to an AT&T telecommunication cable. They cut this cable and quickly made it back to their car. Didn't really say what they cut it with. I'm assuming a telecommunication cable is a big, giant cable. It's not like some shit you plug into your phone. Right. So I'm when did you they say this was? 2013. Okay. Yeah. So I'm assuming they had some kind of like hot saw maybe or I, I can't imagine them using like bolt cutters or something like that. Right. But Probably anyways, not. they cut the cable, quickly made their way back to their car. Roughly 30 minutes later, the PG&E, which is Pacific Gas and Energy Company, they had a transmission station, which is like, I'm sure we've all seen it, but like, it's like a little fenced off area with like transformers mm -hmm. and wires and like those big right. cables and stuff going. Yeah. So right. they, they, uh, they picked up some strange things on the camera that was monitoring this transmission station. Mm. A light can be seen flashing in front of the camera facing towards the perimeter. So there was a camera kind of towards the middle of the station that was facing the entry gate to the fence. So it okay. wasn't looking inside the complex. It was looking from inside out of the complex. Gotcha. But you could see gotcha. like the beam of a flashlight wave back and forth in front of the camera. Okay. And one second later, an unknown amount of gunmen began shooting the transformers at the power station. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Over a hundred rounds of 762, <gasps> uh, which is what it's most commonly found in the AK-47, but obviously it goes in a bunch of other guns, but a hundred oh. rounds of 7.62. That's, hmm. That's expensive. Yeah. The motion sensor was triggered, but investigators believe this was caused due to bullets ricocheting off the fence, since no oh, one was yeah. caught on the camera, which was pointing in the same direction as the motion sensor. So hmm. motion okay. sensor went off, caused the camera to trigger, and then you can see it's like super grainy uh, security camera footage, and you can see bullets ricocheting and like sparking off the fence oh, in wow. the camera shot. Yeah. Only 10 minutes after the shooting started, a worker at a nearby power plant called the police about hearing gunshots. The unknown attackers damaged 17 transformers, which caused about 52,000 gallons of oil to leak out into the station. Mm. Wow. The attack lasted about 20 minutes total, so they were in and out very fast. And the camera that originally spotted the flashlight saw it once again, only minutes before police arrived. So they made their way in. They, a lot of people believe that the flashlight was like a signal to begin the attack and when to end it. Uh -huh. So okay. it would make sense if there was multiple people there and they weren't trying to make any noise. They just, I mean, it's hard not to make noise when you're shooting 100 rounds of AK-47 ammo, but yeah, they used the flashlight yeah. to let their associates know that uh 
they were going to begin the attack. And so, um, last about 20 minutes of them shooting before they made their way out. Never once even caught, like, even a foot of anyone on the camera. Like, oh, they knew exactly where the cameras were, all the motion sensors, all the alarms, and they were able to mm. completely avoid them. And okay, so they had left right before cops came. And since the complex was locked and had like a big fence around it, the cops couldn't get in there without mm-hmm. either like the owner or a warren or whatever. But since they were just mm-hmm. responding to a call, they weren't able to actually go in and inspect. They just drove by and they didn't see anything. But it was literally like less than two minutes when the time that they, the last flashlight was seen and before the cops came. So they were still in the area when police were there. Yeah, they were still there in the area when police arrived, but they weren't seen. Hmm. Damage was discovered a little over an hour after the suspects left at around 3.15 in the morning. After a thorough investigation, nothing was found. The suspects were never caught on camera. They didn't leave any fingerprints or DNA anywhere. Not even like like fibers from their clothing or anything. Mm-hmm. They, hmm. they just seemed to teleport inside and then teleport <laughs> back out. Weird. Uh, overall, this attack only caused a small number of houses to lose their power from the attack. Uh, P- PG&E was able to reroute power to cover the damaged transformers from uh, local solar panels nearby mm. in okay. San Bernardino, I want to say. But they were able to locate them back and somehow reroute it to the transformer or to cover the transformers that were shot. Mm. Okay, gotcha. And like a huge investigation was launched. And since there was no evidence, there was no pictures of them on camera that all they had were the shell casings which someone had meticulously made sure that there was not even fingerprints on the shell casings so this is someone who knew a lot they had a lot of made possibly military experience i don't know like it seems like a a well-planned attack yeah 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 so they Ultimately, they were trying to shut the power grid down in California by attacking this transformer. But they must have known more about guns and being sneaky than they did about electricity because it didn't realistically affect anyone other than the people who had to clean up the transformer station. Right. Because there was 52,000 gallons of oil just sitting on the ground. Wow. Oh, God, that's got to be a mess to clean up. Oh, yeah. that's weird. It, and they I just thought it was weird that they don't have any suspects. They don't have any leads or anything. Yeah. So. And they think that the just ultimate goal was to shut down the the power grid, but they don't know, like, yes, that's... for what purpose other than that. Yeah, that. They believed it was a terrorist attack to try and shut down the power grid in that area of California, which didn't end up working. And a huge investigation was launched. And uh, they, they, 
Homeland Security believes that it was an inside job, which would make sense because they would know right. exactly where, where the cameras, cameras are and the motion sensors right. and alarms. So, I mean, I don't see how it wouldn't be an inside job, but mm-hmm. they don't have any leads or anything. So that's the only thing they have. They're like, we think it's someone who works here or for PG&E and just that's all they have. Wow. And it happened in 2013. They have no information on it. And they know for sure that the people that cut the AT&T line were the same people that did this? I mean, they probably don't. Yeah, well, they don't know for sure, but the thought was that by cutting that line, it would affect the um, sensors and stuff because those stations, they have a bunch mm. of sensors that transmit. Like if there's an error with one of the transmitters, uh. it'll send it and like alert another PG&E station nearby so that they can send a repair guy out and right deal with it but this was it happened at 1 30 i believe is when they entered 1 30 a.m so there wasn't a lot of people working at the station at the time so they knew no one was going to be there one they knew that by cutting this power line it would make it harder for one station to contact another one and say there was an issue Mm -hmm. so right that was the main idea behind them cutting the communication line. But right. it still didn't work because I don't know if there was a station closer, but a station about 60 miles away was alerted that there was an error with one of their machines. Happened to be 17 of them that had errors, but oh. they were alerted and they got a guy out there about an hour after they left. I think I said, and wow, no idea, no idea who did it. Why? what weird i mean it's super weird and the fact that there no one's ever really heard of that like i right i heard about it the other day and it happened in 2013 so in your research did you find that there was a successful attack on another station somewhere else and this no but they like i think it was north carolina like right after that there was threats of another attack but i don't believe it actually happened okay because there was a lot of people who were concerned about a station in north carolina but it never ended up getting attacked i don't think so it was just this one thing and they're like ah shit maybe we need to try something else (laughs) i guess that didn't work let's try something else plan b wild yeah no i'd never heard of that yeah that only way to classify it is a terror terroristic attack because their plan was to shut down the power grid and that yeah ca- that would cause That's a lot good. of a lot of problems especially in California yeah yeah, yeah. wow super weird though yeah Well, are you ready for my story, my potential serial killer story? Yes, I am. I don't know how I keep finding these potential serial killer stories. I did not remember writing down this story because it was potentially a serial killer one. And I started looking into it and I was like, oh, great. Another one of these. So we're never going to know with this one either. 
and I will explain why. But mm, well, great. no, I guess we could we could know if he was a serial killer or a serial asshole for sure. So, on January 26, 1979, at around 10 a.m., Kim Bryant was standing in the parking lot of the Dairy Queen in West Las Vegas, Nevada. Kim was a 16-year-old sophomore who attended Western High School, which was located across the street from the Dairy Queen. On that morning, Kim had been to school to register for the next set of classes. After doing so, she and a friend crossed the street and were hanging out at the Dairy Queen. Not long after that, um, they were waiting in the parking lot and a 1950s uh, Chevy vehicle with primer paint spots had, and it had raised wheels in the back. This vehicle drove up, two men inside. They made some comments to the two girls. The girls returned uh, some words in exchange. There were some obscene remarks on both parts. The men got hissy about it and drove off. So as Kim and her friend waited there, um, a few minutes later, the mother of Kim's friend drove up to pick up her daughter. She offered Kim a ride home, and but Kim declined, saying that her boyfriend was on his way to pick her up. About 15 minutes later, Kim's boyfriend arrived at the Dairy Queen parking lot, but Kim was nowhere to be found. He was left assuming um, that she had just gotten a ride with somebody else. So, you know, this is 1979. It's not like cell phones. He's not calling her to say, hey, where are you? So he just figured she'd gotten a ride somewhere and he left. A couple hours later, Kim was last seen um, a couple of... Excuse me. A couple hours after Kim was last seen by her friend, a motorist uh, driving by spotted a backpack on the side of it, the road that the Dairy Queen was on. It wasn't at the Dairy Queen that they found this backpack, but it was down the road farther. The driver stopped and picked up the bag, opened it and found that Kim's belongings were inside. A lot of stuff identifying it to Kim. As a courtesy, the driver tried calling Kim, but no one answered. Kim's mother, Sherry, was expecting Kim home by 1230. They had plans to go shopping, but Kim never arrived. When Kim didn't come home, her mom was obviously upset. She went out searching for her and didn't find her. It was very unusual for Kim to not show up. She was pretty uh, timely, and she was the kind of person who would call if she was going to be late to something, but no one heard from her. So Sherry, uh, Kim's mom, and Kim's stepfather reported Kim missing to the police department. However, after learning that the family had an argument the night before, they believed that Kim had just run away from home. They said, oh, she's staying with a friend. It'll be fine. You know, that kind of old story. Um, police suggested that Kim was just, you know, blowing off some steam, getting over the argument. Kim's How parents she tried. Come? 16. I feel like that's a bad response from police. Just yes. Because obviously with like adults, if they go missing, they can't do like a search. Right. And like an investigation because they're an adult, but a 16 year old. That... Right. 16 year old that went missing. They thought, well, you guys had a fight last night. She's just staying with a friend and you can't get a hold of her. So. They just kind of put it off as, you know, being a teenager kind of thing. 
Kim's parents tried to get the media involved because the police weren't paying attention. So they went to the media and said, can you report, you know, file something, do a news story, something. But the um, the media wouldn't get involved because they said that the police didn't declare her as a runaway. They declared her a runaway, but not missing. And so they weren't going to do a news uh, piece on just another runaway girl in their opinion. So they did nothing. Unfortunately, Kim remained um, considered a runaway until the police learned that a stranger found her backpack. But that was a week later when they heard that. So Kim was gone for an entire week, no contact, nothing. They didn't declare her missing. They were just like runaway kid throwing a temper tantrum, you know, teenage angsty kind of stuff until they heard that somebody found the backpack and they were like, Oh, maybe she didn't go run away. But by this time, no one, there were no sightings of Kim, nothing, no reports, anything. Almost a month later, on February 20th, three teenage boys were hiking in the desert west of town. They spotted what they believed was a wig and some nearby brush. Unfortunately, it wasn't a wig, but it was Kim's half-naked body. The boys flagged down a police car that was driving close by. Kim had died from multiple blows to the head and she'd been sexually assaulted. Sadly, there was discussion that Kim didn't die quickly after her abduction, but had possibly survived for several days. Police began investigating the case, but had no leads for months. In the summer of that year, though, a couple of other students had reported a, that they had had a weird interaction around the same time that Kim had gone missing. Um, a couple of days before Kim's disappearance, these students reported that two men and a similarly described vehicle, Chevy's ve Chevy vehicle uh, with, you know, mismatched tires, big tires in the back kind of thing that they, two guys had pulled up in this vehicle offered to sell these girls some jewelry. The girls looked in the back of the car, didn't see jewelry, thought it was weird told the guys to get lost, obscene words were exchanged and the men drove off. But it was similar kind of situation. Two guys, similarly described vehicle, obscenities exchanged, and then the guys drove off. They didn't find out this information until months after Kim had disappeared. Police were able to get descriptions of these men, but sadly it didn't lead anywhere and the case eventually grew cold. Four years after Kim's death, another young woman went missing. Her name was Diana Hansen. She was a 22-year-old college student who was home for holiday break. Her brother had given her a new Walkman, and she decided to go for a run in, in the afternoon on December 30, 1983. She never returned. A construction worker found her body the following morning. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed numerous times. It appeared that she had run into the desert, but was stopped by a chain link fence, which is where her killer caught her. By the looks of the scene, there had been a struggle. Her Walkman headphones were missing. Investigators were able to get tire impressions from the area where her body was found, but there was no vehicle description. So they, you know, if they found a vehicle later, they could compare, but they had no idea. They just got some tread marks. Police obtained DNA from Diana's body, but had no suspects. Both cases went cold for decades. 
There was some movement in Kim's case in 2008. Investigators were able to develop a DNA profile of the suspect in her case. Entering the profile into the national database, they were hoping for an answer, but sadly, there was no match. In 2021, 42 years after um, Kim's death and 38 years after Diana's death, there was finally a break in both of these cases. First, it was Kim's case that that got um, some resolution. A philanthropist donated money to the Las Vegas Police Department specifically to pay for DNA testing to help solve cold cases. Through genealogical tracing and familial DNA, the lab was able to identify both Kim and Diana's killer. His name was Johnny Peterson. So first, they were able to link him to Kim's case. And then there was like an anonymous tip kind of situation that said, somebody said, hey, I know this guy, Peterson, had these headphones in his trunk around the time that all of this occurred. And so they looked at the DNA profile and matched uh, Peterson's DNA to uh, both cases that way. So unfortunately, though, he had died from a drug overdose in 1993. However, and this is where I said we might not know if he was a serial killer, but we might, because they're still testing his DNA to see if it matches any other cold cases from that area. Um, They believe he might be linked to possibly five other cases I don't know which cases those were or why they think he was, but they're testing his DNA on other cases and there's a chance he was a serial killer and that Kim and Diana were not his only two victims, but I did not see any other victims being attributed to him in the research that I did. So maybe. Maybe. It's just super weird that story. Like, just like a traveling merchant trying to sell shit out of the back of his fucked up Chevy with two no, different wheels I, on it. Yeah, that was just I one think. Of them. <laughs> I think that was just their ruse. These two guys. So that was the other thing. They uh, really don't know if he was tied to these incidents where you know with the chevy approaching they don't know for sure and if it was if he was one of those guys in the vehicle who was the other guy there's no mention of any other dna samples from either body so i don't know it's weird it is super weird. Super weird. So but we the DNA two, doesn't lie, so. Two stories that don't have any answers. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> right. Well, so, I mean, mine has an answer. Cases, uh, you know, yeah, two. he was, he killed two, two you know, women. Um, maybe he did more. I don't know. So. But no, like, anyway. definitive. Here's this guy. Now he's in jail and he's getting beat up by prisoners every day but yeah i mean the good news is he you know is no longer victimizing people so true and no one's having to pay for him to be incarcerated yes 
Yes, that's another thing. Because mm-hmm. that's not cheap. It costs money to put people in jail. Cost all of us money. Yeah. Well, do you have a fun chaser for us? I do, but it is not for the PC-minded people. Uh oh. <laughs> I have a watch recommendation. Uh, for a new comedy special from my favorite comedian Shane Gillis called uh, "Wonderful oh. Dogs" or "Beautiful Dogs," I think is beautiful. yeah, "Beautiful Dogs." <laughs> it's that really was funny. The new I watched one, right? probably, that we just watched. Yeah, yeah, yeah I watched it, it probably good. three or four times by now. It's it's really funny. It was good. It's a good watch, but again, if you're not PC, there's a lot of words that a lot of PC people don't like. So if you're PC. I would recommend skipping this chaser, but I don't know. You're an adult. Choice is yours. Right. Exactly. Do you have a chaser for us, Mom? I do have a chaser. Um, I just saw an article really in, uh, recently that, you know, I, Malaysia Airways, that um, Flight 370, the one that went missing back in uh, 2014? Mm-hmm. That okay, so for people who might not remember, this airplane full of people just disappeared off the radar. And there's been, you know, all sorts of like, where did it go? And they can't find it. And they they did extensive searching, but they've never found basically anything. A year after that, um parts, small parts of the plane washed on shore and there's a scientist in florida who now believes that they might be able to use the shells of barnacles to determine where that flight crashed so the pieces Mm. that have washed up have barnacles that have attached to the plane parts and have grown and as barnacles grow, they grow in layers like rings on a tree, and they can evaluate the chemical makeup of the layers, and it will tell them the temperature of the water when that part of the shell was growing. And so the scientists think that they can take the barnacle shells, break them down, and evaluate where the temperatures were during the time that the barnacle grew and then trace that back through like the path that the water would have gone. So they think they can trace it back from knowing where it washed up, where it would have originated and taking like the oldest, biggest barnacles off of that will tell them farther back when the barnacle was deposited on the plane part. I don't know. Very sciencey. I just thought, I was like, holy cow, that is like really weird. But that's like a new development that they're trying to figure out with uh, sciencey stuff. That's interesting. I, yeah. Oh, when did that plane go down? Was that 2011 2014. 14. 2014. Okay. Yeah. 
I wonder if there was anyone so, on Porton on that plane. They just pulled a a Pergozin on his ass. Fucking shot know. the whole plane down. I don't know. But it's interesting that they, so, I mean, they searched where they thought the plane would have gone down. And they didn't find any plane wreckage. But, I mean, the ocean's big and deep. And I've always wondered, like, how are they so sure that they can't find it? The ocean is not like a little pond. But, again, well, science-y stuff. One of our upcoming stories involves searching for plane in the water. So maybe that will shed oh. some more light on it. Stay tuned. Oh, yes. Listen. I should, should okay. be in two weeks, I think. Okay. But You're not going to be doing the Malaysia Airways, the missing flight, are no. you? Okay. This is another different missing plane. But... Well, I've thought about doing that, um, you know, that story on a bazaar before, but I just haven't looked into it that much. But now I feel like I should just because there might be some resolution to it someday. I don't I think it's one of those things like similar to the story I did today where they don't have any explanation. So it's just going to be like, right. here's what happened. Right. Well, maybe Who if knows? they found where it crashed, they might be able to find evidence of why. You know, yeah. the black box and all that good stuff. I don't know if the black box, how long a black box can survive in an ocean. Who knows? Interesting. Okay, that reminds me of a tangent for a side chaser thing. There's a known plane crash. I believe it's in Australia. That's a common scuba diving expedition, I guess you could say. It's like a a well-known plane crash. And someone went down to the plane crash and they brought like a fake skeleton and they <gasps> strapped it in to the seat in the bathroom. So when you're sky or scuba diving through this airplane, you open up like the bathroom, there's like a fake skeleton sitting on the toilet. Oh my gosh, that would scare <laughs> the shit out of me. I saw it on Instagram and everyone was like, what is that? And then someone finally commented like, oh, this was put there a couple of years ago just to mess with people. But <laughs> <laughs> I like super that. Super interesting at that. I, I like oh, a little prank funny. like that. Yeah, that's a good prank. Nobody got hurt. Yeah. No. Well, it's thanks for telling well, me your story yeah. about yeah. people attacking the PG&E transformer station. Yeah, I, I still think it's weird that we've never heard of that because it's one of the biggest yeah. issues today yeah. is if power grid goes down and that's exactly what they're trying to do. So I, that's you know, not good. Kind of weird. All right. All thanks right. for listening, Well, nice everybody. chat with you. Yes. Thanks for yeah. tuning in. All that good stuff. All right. All right. Love, Love you, bud. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.